0: You have your Bible with you, I trust. We're going to the Gospel of John, the scripture reading for this morning. John's Gospel, the 10th chapter, and I'm reading the first 21 verses and reading from the English Standard Version. The Gospel of John and the 10th chapter and commencing to read at verse one. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a, a demon and is in sin. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May God be pleased to bless to us this portion of his word this morning. Let us pray. Our Father, we too would come and ask that you would open our eyes, that we may perceive wonderful things out of your law. We ask, our Father, that you would warm our hearts, that we might delight ourselves in you. And we pray that you would so move our wills that we will follow closely the Good Shepherd. Be our portion now, we ask as we open your word, teach us, illuminate our understanding, and direct our thoughts, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. On January the 19th, 1863, The shadow of the Great Famine still fell over Ireland, a famine that caused approximately one million deaths in Ireland and caused another million of its population to leave the country and to seek refuge in the United States. Alexander Irvine was born into dire poverty in the town of Antrim, in County Antrim, which is now part of Northern Ireland. Irvine would become a minister of the gospel and an author. And one of his greatest books is entitled, My Lady of the Chimney Corner. And it tells the story of his his parents, Anna and Jamie. They were a young couple who had endured severe poverty and the social stigma that accompanied their mixed marriage. For Anna was a Catholic and Jamie a Protestant. Their life together was a constant struggle to survive, but through it all they had one unshakable conviction one unshakable belief. Love is enough. Love is enough. Their love for one another was enough for every crisis, for every challenge, for every circumstance, for every condition. As long as there was love, That was enough. And such reasoning and resolve finds its parallel in the word of God. This morning I'm going back to that portion that we opened last week, to that 23rd Psalm. And Psalm 23 begins with those opening words, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And surely, if we but believed that, if we grasped that, if we accepted that truth, what more would we need? Surely to grasp the weight and the fullness of these opening words of this 23rd Psalm would prove to us to be enough. But sadly, we are by and large a people of little faith, unbelief, fails to turn doctrinal facts into daily faith. And yet God in his loving kindness and his tender mercies unpacks this opening statement so that we might find comfort and we might have that hope which he desires for us. So what can we glean this morning from these familiar words that will assure us that this message is true, sufficient, and enough? Well, my outline this morning is is rather simple. The three points that I'm going to emphasize are simply this, to consider something of the, the scripture and its imagery, and then the shepherd and his identity, and the sheep and their individuality. The scripture and its imagery. Psalm 23, as I indicated last week, Psalm 23 is a a hymn of praise. It's an anthem of assurance. And it's comprised of three distinct scenes as in a play. Scene one the curtain rises and the setting is pastoral. The shepherd appears, verses one through four. And his role is to to give, his role is to guide. And what's the message of this scene? Well, it's this, as long as the shepherd lives, he guarantees that none of his sheep will ever lack. He will bear his responsibilities for them continuously and consistently. Whether they be by still waters or whether they be in dark valleys, he will never forsake his own. The curtain falls. And then after a moment or so, it rises again to scene two. And the setting now is homely. We see the host preparing a banquet for his guest, and the guest being refreshed and restored with health-giving oils, and all in the face of a watchful and impotent Enemy. The fifth verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So, what is the message of this scene? Well, if scene one highlights the shepherd and his responsibility, scene two highlights the host and his sufficiency. The curtain falls again and then rises, and we have the third scene brought out in the sixth verse. The setting this time is of a journey, a pilgrimage, a traveler on his way to a glorious destination being urged along by two footmen who have been sent by the owner of the home to which they're heading. A home that has been promised, a home that is prepared. And so what is the message of this scene? The message is that of an assured eternity. So, what images are here? The image of a shepherd who is always present and always guiding. The image of a host who is always providing and always guarding. And a home that is already prepared and glorious. And each scene comes together combining to assure us that all the days of our lives will be attended to and catered for by the Lord's goodness and grace. And that we will get to our final journey because we, we are loved with such a love that, 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 that's been described as love which is like super glue. you can't get away from it. His love for us ensures an eternity of glory. Now surely knowing those things, seeing those scenes, receiving that image and knowing the message, isn't Psalm 23 enough for us? To give us hope and comfort and assurance. The scripture and its imagery. But then add to that my second point, the shepherd and his identity. For who is this shepherd being spoken of here in this 21st Psalm? Who's the host? And, and whose house is it that the pilgrim is going to? Well, in the Old Testament, he is one known for his activity and his intimacy with his people. His name is Jehovah. And the names of God reveal something of the identity of our God. You see, The emphasis in Psalm 23 verse 1 is on that word Lord or Jehovah or or Yahweh more than it is on the shepherd. You see, it's, it's who the shepherd is that's the significant thing. It's who he is that is the major thing. And who is he? Well, he is, of course, the great I am. The reference here is back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, where, where God does reveal himself as the great I am and as Yahweh, or Jehovah. The shepherd is the self deriving, ongoing, never ending God. He's the ever-present one, the ever-active one, the one who's always intervening for his people's good. In the words of the great Old Testament scholar Alec Motia, he says that this this name is an open-ended assertion of divine sufficiency. Whatever circumstance may arise, God says, I will be there, and I will be sufficient. I will be with you, and I will be sufficient for you. Now, many of us, I'm sure, know the various subtitles that are linked to this great name. And interestingly, you you find them uh, looking, as it were, in the background of Psalm 23. What I mean is this, in Genesis 22 and verse 14, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, echoed here in the first verse. In Judges 6, 24, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord brings peace, you find it here in verse 2. Jehovah Rapha, Judges and Exodus, the Lord heals, you find it here in verse 3 and so forth. Jehovah's name is explored and expounded and expressed as you walk your way through the sand. So that the, the meaning of that name gives us comfort that our God is a God who meets needs and is neither ignorant nor surprised by the difficulties that we encounter. Furthermore, he is the one who decides what it is that I need and the very process of ensuring that whatever it is, he will supply. Because, you see, sometimes we go to God with our needs, but they're not the greatest need we have. You know, I I think of the Apostle Paul. He thought he had a great need. He had a thorn in the side. He prays to God to take this away from him. He needs this to be removed. But his real need was weakness and grace. God knows what we really need. And he supplies what we really need. His name is Jehovah. Jehovah reveals his identity, but the name also declares his intimacy. You see, that word, the Lord, that we're acquainted with, refers to a title uh, in a similar vein as we would use the word king. It conveys the idea of aloofness, of distance. He is the Lord. He is, he is king. But Jehovah, Yahweh, these are names which convey the aspect of intimacy and of closeness. Uh, Forgive me for being somewhat uh, blunt, but uh, we might say the name that we have here, Jehovah, Yahweh, is God's first name that we are on first name terms with Almighty God. He has come to us and revealed himself to us so that we may be intimately, personally acquainted with him. Let me illustrate it this way. Dale Ralph Davis, another Old Testament scholar, a former professor, uh, wrote uh, this little uh, story as it were. I quote, one may sometimes be around a group of men and hears one of them refer to his wife. The wife doesn't like Brussels sprouts. Or the wife went shopping this morning for for shoes. Well, says Davies, one can talk like that and folks know to whom such a fellow is referring. But he is using a title and it seems a bit cold and a bit A bit detached. You know, the the wife did this, or the wife went there. But I never, adds Davis, I never call my wife the wife. I call her Barbara, because that's her name. And that's the truth being brought out here in Psalm 23 and verse 1. David is calling God by his first name, an indication of intimacy. The psalmist is on intimate terms with this God whose name is Jehovah, which means I will always be present with my people to be whatever they need me to be to them. So, who is the shepherd? In the Old Testament, his name is Jehovah. And so, in the New Testament, he is identified by the name Jesus. Jesus. Who is this Jesus? That portion that I read in your hearing a little while ago, John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Jesus' listeners would have understood what he was speaking about here. He is identifying himself with that shepherd. You notice that there as he speaks and recorded in John 10, again and again he uses the word I am. I am that I am. And the audience fully understood as is brought out in verses 31 to 33. And furthermore, Jesus reveals how he shepherds his flock. He lays down his life for his sheep. Which simply implies sacrifice. He lays it down, it's not taken from him. It implies substitution because it's for his sheep, for the benefit in the place of his sheep. It's submission because it accords with the Father's will is for salvation so rich and free, Jesus, the good shepherd. And then you read on a bit in your New Testament and you come to the book of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20, where we find a further identifying description. He is now the great shepherd. And interestingly, in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life. In Hebrews 13, the great shepherd takes it up again. He stands up again in resurrection. And that's why he is able to shepherd his sheep. Because death couldn't hold him. He is alive and alive forevermore. He is our forever shepherd, forever shepherding his foolish, fragile, failing sheep. He knows them. He knows you. And he knows me by name. That's how intimate it is. He knows us by name. And then you turn to 1 Peter chapter five and verse four, and you read that he is the chief shepherd. And you notice that he is coming again, coming again to reward those who have stood steadfastly in the face of trial and of tempest and trouble and tribulation, the very theme of 1 Peter. But he's coming again to, to gather his sheep unto himself that where he is, they may be also forever and ever. And my friends, this morning, if you if you are a member of his flock, then there is no circumstances or no condition beyond our shepherd's care and control, for he is the grit I am. He is, he is the I will be with my people to be whatever they need me to be kind of shepherd. So knowing something of his identity, That he is the good and the great and the chief shepherd. And knowing something of his intimacy, that he knows our name, he knows the street you live in, he knows the number of your house. Knowing us that way, is that not enough? Is that not enough? My fellow worshippers, What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. The scripture and its imagery, the shepherd and his identity, and so thirdly and finally, the sheep and their individuality. Remember what we pointed to last week, that little word, my shepherd. A relationship, a personal relationship, an individual relationship. And so so what's implied here between shepherd and sheep? Three little thoughts. Our personal reliance upon him. You see, my, my question to you this morning is this. How do you know that you are one of the Lord's sheep. What characterized his sheep? Well, this, this confession, the Lord is my shepherd. A confession, you see, that it speaks of the awareness of need, the need of someone to grace me with faith to believe. The need of someone to guard me from my own foolishness. The need of someone to to guide me in my frailty. The need for someone to give me the fortitude I need to face the future. To put it as bluntly and as boldly as I can, you cannot say in all honesty, The Lord is my shepherd, and still believe in your own abilities or adequacy. My shepherd is a confession of need, it's an admission of help wanted. An announcement that I am so aware of my sinful tendencies that I need the good shepherd to save me, and I need the great shepherd to pray for me, and I need the chief shepherd to come for me. But, my friends, the Lord is my shepherd it is not some pious platitude, but it is an honest confession of our own spiritual bankruptcy. It's the declaration of the crucifixion of my own pride and arrogance and independence. Yes, it's a text that is full of comfort on the one hand, but of challenge on the other. We declare our deficiency in order to delight in his all-sufficiency our personal reliance upon Him, which comes from, secondly, our personal receiving of Him. What do I mean? John chapter 1 and verse 12 paints a beautiful picture for us. As many as receive Him, He gives the authority, He gives the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. What's what's the picture? Well, you know it well. You're at a wedding ceremony. The bride and groom are standing before the officiating minister. And the groom is asked, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? So what do you do? You listen carefully for the what? I will. And then the bride is asked, will you have this man to be your wedded husband? And so we hold our breath for another second and listen carefully for those words, I will, I will. My friends, that's what God is asking each of us this morning. Will you have this man? Will you have this shepherd? Will you have this Jesus as your savior and as your sovereign? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. In receiving him personally, heaven's beloved son, For as the text says, to all who receive him, that is to all who believe in his name, he gives the right, he gives the authority, he gives the privilege to become children of God. And I wonder whether there's ever been a time in your spiritual journey when you did declare and say, I will. I will take this man. This is imperative. For being Christ's sheep is a personal thing marked by receiving him and our reliance upon him and thus our personal rejoicing in him. For the glorious fact is this, genuine faith overflows with gladness and delight. That we're not dragged into the kingdom, as it were, kicking and screaming. No, no, no. Our our religion is is one of rejoicing. That our piety is one of pleasure. And our hope is one of eternal happiness. And our duty is absolute delight. To quote the way... John Piper reframed the first question in the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So, how do we glorify God? Not by our great achievements for him, but by our humble submission to him. Not by what we can do for him, but what he can do for us. Not by our efforts for him, but beloved, it's our need of him which glorifies him. Our emptiness being filled with his fullness. To quote Piper again, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. How do we glorify God? By desiring him, by delighting in him, and by a reverence for him, and our rejoicing in him. Did you realize, my Christian friend, uh, that the young people talking about the Ten Commandments, let me give you another commandment. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's a command. Yet how, what a terrible witness we bear so often that we're the most miserable of people. No wonder people don't want to become Christians when they look at us. They don't confuse rejoicing with happiness. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Rejoicing is in the Lord. The shepherd is always with us, supplying, securing, taking us home. What stimulates rejoicing? One little word. Remembering. Remembering, In Psalm 78, the psalmist records how Israel rebelled against the Lord, how they grieved him, put him to the test, vexed the Holy One of Israel. And they did it because the scripture says they did not remember. They did not remember his power. They did not remember their redemption. They did not remember the wonders that he did. Why, Why do we have this table here this morning? Why do we have the Lord's table? Do this in what? do this in remembrance of me remember my mercies remember my grace remember my love which sticks like superglow which is beyond measure and so as the lord's sheep we are to remember that he is the great i am The good shepherd who died for us. The great shepherd who prays for us. The chief shepherd who is coming for us. And surely, surely our remembrance of him ought to bring rejoicing to our hearts. A peace that passes understanding in our minds. And give to us a testimony of of hope before a lost and dying world. As Peter said, we're to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. To remember that the great I am, Jehovah, is my shepherd. And whatever, whatever the shepherd ordains in your life and mine is right, is right. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd, isn't that enough? Let's pray together. Father, you write your word on our hearts. Enable us to be a people of hope and of rejoicing that a lost and dying world that's so confused and chaotic and bitter disappointed May see in us a difference, the difference that the shepherd has made to us. That we may glorify you by our weakness, and you may glorify, us by this, uh, glorify yourself by the strength that you grant to us. Help us and hear us for your own name's sake. Amen.